Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Chris Patterson, a co-host of the network, and my guest today is Jan Patios, who is an associate professor and director of graduate studies in the American Studies Department at the University of Maryland College Park, and an affiliate faculty in Women's Studies and the Asian American Studies program. We'll discuss her new book, A Nation on the Line, Call Centers as Postcolonial Predicaments in the Philippines, which was published by Duke University Press in March 2018. Dr. Patios' book sheds light on the industry of offshore call centers in the Philippines and attempts to understand the narratives cast upon call center workers as laborers whose main resource is their ability to relate to their Western and specifically American clientele. What does it mean when we see relatability as a national resource? How are Filipino workers reshaped by the seemingly benevolent industry? Dr. Patios attempts to tackle these questions through years of transnational research involving interviews and participation and through understanding call center work within a larger context of American colonization and neoliberal policies that have shaped the contemporary Philippines. So here to tell us more about her book, let's welcome Jan Patios to the podcast. Jan, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Chris. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you begin by telling us a bit more about yourself and what brought you to write this book? Sure. So um, how I came to this project uh, is that, you know, a couple of, uh, well, actually many years ago now, um, this really interesting thing happened in my family. And I, I talk about this um, in the beginning of the book. Um, you know, so for decades, um, one of my aunts here in the United States, uh, she's a retired nurse. She was sending remittances home um, and these remittances uh, home to the Philippines. And uh, these remittances were paying for uh, some of my younger cousins to go to school and to study nursing um, with the expectation that uh, they would become nurses, um, take the board exam and then come to the United States or go to the UK uh, to, to work abroad and then kind of start that whole process over again. Um, so for reasons though, that are not still not too clear to me, um, one of my cousins who was supported in this manner by, um, by our aunt, uh, she didn't want to continue, um, in the, you know, down the, the nursing trajectory. Uh, she had gone to nursing school. Um, but at the point at which she was about to take the board exam, she disappeared. Uh, she was she disappeared for about two weeks. And, you know, of course, everybody in our family was, was worried about her, was concerned, um, hope, you know, didn't know if we, she was OK, didn't know where she was. Um, but two weeks later, uh, she she actually resurfaced and uh, she said she was fine um, and she let everybody know that she had gotten a job in a call center. And, uh, you know, my my aunt was very angry uh, about this and everyone was really surprised. And, um, you know, part, you know, partly it was an anger was about a sense of kind of uh, betrayal and false promise. uh, But also, I think there was a lot of worry that the the, working in a call center was not, uh, you know, a wise idea. 
So, um, you know, everything was fine. Uh, my cousin's fine today. And, um, and, but, but at the time I became really curious about, uh, about this place that she wanted to work and why she wanted to work there. And, um, you know, she, she told us that the money was good. She was supporting herself. She had made friends. She liked working there. And so I became very curious about, um, about what call centers were and why so many young people, not just my cousin were, were going, um, going to work there. So all of this happened at an interesting time during my graduate studies at NYU. I was um, a second year doctoral student in American studies, and um, I was in the Philippines doing archival research on American businesses in the Philippines during the colonial era. Um, at the time, I really was very interested in understanding how the intensification of capitalist market relations in general and the increasing presence of American companies and products in particular, had changed Filipino lives in the first few decades of the 20th century. Um, I was really interested, you know, in consumer culture, markets, um, kind of, you know, political economy, things like that. Um, And for me, that was a way of studying how colonialism as our worked through everyday life and culture, which is, you know, a foundational idea um, in the field of American studies. So that's what I was doing in the archive. But, um, you know, as I just described, all of these things were happening outside of the archive in my family. And, you know, I was seeing I was in the Philippines, seeing lots of people going to work in call centers. And it kind of dawned on me that these questions that I was asking in the archive were questions that I could really easily apply to, uh, about the present. Right. Right. And the dynamics right there in front of me. So I started to shift my attention toward call centers and think about how to do an ethnographic project. Um, I had done ethnography for my master's degree, so that really wasn't um, wasn't new to me. And it was a method that I enjoyed. Um, so really, I came to the call center uh, by accident or a combination, I would say, of, of accident, um, intention and uh, intense curiosity. Uh, at the time, I wasn't somebody who had studied work culture or labor processes, uh, but that changed really quickly. Your book usefully unpacks not only how call center labor grows out of imperial relationships with the U.S., but also can be seen as a sign of how these imperial relationships have changed. Can you unpack this for us? How do you we see call center work in relation to American empire and capital? Yeah, so that's a great question, Chris, and it's really like at the um, you know at the heart of the book and why I wanted to write it. Uh, you know, I would say that the continuity between colonialism, uh, American colonialism, and call centers is, I think, fairly clear from the surface of things, right? right? So uh, the call center industry is a place that demands that people speak English um, and, uh, you know, serve uh, an audience uh, of customers from advanced industrialized countries, right? And English is the language um, that Americans uh, insisted that Filipinos learn uh, during the colonial era. And, um, you know, for that reason, uh, a large majority of the you know, population uh, speaks English. Um, it's also, you know, the industry is also built on this idea of an assumed cultural proximity between Americans um, and Filipinos. So this idea that Filipinos are kind of um, very intimately uh, knowledgeable about uh, American America, American ways of life and um therefore uniquely suited to uh, to do call center work or customer service work. And then really there's the kind of larger dynamics of labor exploitation that, um, you know, have been uh, that structure of the global economy. And so outsourcing to the Philippines is um, part of a really long history of Filipino labor being in, incorporated into, um, you know, the, the U.S. economy and, 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 
being exploited by U.S. capital. And uh, so I do frame it that way, you know, in the beginning of the book, to, you know, it's really important to understand the call center as um, you know, not unique in that, in that sense, as being part of that longer history. And then there's also the larger structure of outsourcing from the U.S. and other uh, wealthy countries. So, um, you know, the, the outsourcing of customer service jobs from the United States began actually as early as the, the late 1970s, but it was really in the 1990s that it took off with, um, you know, massive corporate downsizing and uh, shareholder revolution and things like that. Um, and the the work started to go abroad, uh, first two locations in the UK, and then, of course, India became a very um, huge location. And then from India, it, uh, the work started to also be sent to um you know, countries in Southeast Asia and other locations in the world. And that's when really the Philippines kind of came on the scene. So, um, you know, those are kind of the surface things uh, that I think will be apparent to, you know, folks who know some things about these different dynamics. But once I really scratched the surface of this in my research, I saw some nuances to how this um, kind of imperial relations worked in the present. And as you said, you know, this is... um, this is about how power is operating um, now, and it isn't that you know, you know, it isn't. It's that the power is operating in a new way um, under global, you know neoliberal globalization. So there's an emphasis in the industry really on um, market relationships and partnership and investment. All of these sort of seemingly neutral terms that have to do with capital uh, and that have to do with the global economy, but um, you know, what I look at is the way that those terms really mask the um, ongoing imperial relations and the great deal of in- unevenness in the ways that the, the labor and value are, are flowing uh, between the Philippines and the United States. So um, some examples of this uh, from the fieldwork are that, um, you know, the English language, you know, for example, is something that, of course, is highly valued uh, within the industry. And um, but it's interesting, you know, it's interesting for me to find that people really value the language, not because it has this proximity to a former colonial power, but because they see it as the language of global capital. And so there's a way in which that sh- there's a shift to um, a kind of calling out of not calling out of, but a kind of recognition of like power dynamics to a kind of dismissal of those dynamics or a way in which those dynamics are played down because it's understood that it's like in everybody's interest, so to speak, to, you know, to to speak um, to speak English. Um, there's also this sense, especially in 2008 and 2009, when I really started doing this field work, uh, that the U.S. was a was a you know an economy and a country in decline, and so that um, you know when when call centers uh, when corporate clients came to the Philippines to um, you know to find Filipino labor and to employ Filipino labor, what the Philippines was doing was helping those corporations rather than being supplicant to them. So this language of partnership kind of came in to replace the the language of uh, domination or submission. Um, You know, and you can really see these dynamics at like a very minute level in the industry as well. Um, You know, one of the things that labor scholars have, you know, have talked about for a very long time is the way that labor processes um, especially when they when you add technology to them, they become they get broken down into smaller and smaller uh, you know, units of, of labor. And that's what kind of, you know, uh, degrades the labor and makes it um, you know, possible for people to be paid very low wages for simple parts of a, you know, of a process. 
And this happens in the, the call center industry as well. So that, you know, there are some individuals who are working in call centers who only really like are trained to do very particular things with a very particular type of technology. So on the, on the um, account that I was trained to work on, um, you know, which we will we'll talk about more in, in, you know, in a few minutes, I'm sure, is, um, you know, one of the things that we learned was just spe- very specifically how to deal with uh, a type of, pr- a very specific type of printer for a very specific type of customer. And on the one hand, you know, a kind of labor scholar would see this and say, this is, this is part of that breakdown um, of the labor process into smaller and smaller tasks that, you know, that are, um, that don't require as much skill. But within the call center industry, this kind of um, knowledge uh, is recast as uh, subject matter expertise. So that it gets given a name, it's given a legitimacy, um, and it is meant to definitely kind of elevate that, that knowledge uh, that somebody has. But it's also a way, in my opinion, to recast that knowledge as something that is, um, you know, again, sort of neutral or, in, or to some extent positive. And I kind of look at some of those, um, those deep dynamics um, in the fieldwork. So it was really vexing, um, fascinating, but really vexing to see how market logic and thinking permeate um, so much, you know, of the way that people think about these relationships uh, in the present. And, um, you know, and I really want to argue, I really do argue that this is really not the best way to think about social relations right, between people. So that's that's a really big reason that the book itself is a critique of these global relations um, and is, a, you know, a larger critique of capitalism. Yeah. And th- one of the um, I think now that you said all that, I, I started to get why I was so in, uh, enticed by that anecdote that you gave before um, in, in this uh, in the sense that. I'm thinking of like Iowa Ong's first book about um, microprocessor factories in, in Malaysia uh, and how they were, they were kind of delivered with a very similar promise, right? That because these factories are associated with information technology or new technology and knowledge economies, that this is always a progressive step forward, you know, compared to those other types of service work. Uh, and I think the way you describe it in your book is quite similar in that it has this kind of... Um, this aura of like information technology uh, and that we're kind of, that this is a kind of entry point right into that, um, into that global economy. Uh, but what, what was interesting, I think because you're, this is an ethnographic project um, that we kind of got to see the nitty and gritty of the type of skill sets that were really demanded upon these workers and just how, um, how difficult, first of all, the work was, how demanding it was, um, but how demanding it was almost more on one's emotions and one's abilities to like multitask um, and control every situation and, and be able to like calculate, you know, how much time they're spending talking to the customer. Um, and of course, to take a lot of crap, right, from the customers, um, depending on how, you know, whose fault it is and everything like that. And so um, those were like, th- those were some of those really uh, fascinating points for me was being able to kind of enter into those spaces and then realize that this is the narrative associated with them is, is so um, different than what it actually feels like, I think, to be there. So can you talk a bit um, about the, the experience of being there, you know, your researches and methods, um, how you conducted research, who you talked to, um, and any difficulties you might have faced? Sure. So, you know, this is, um, 
So it's an ethnographic project, um, but I should say that, uh, you know, I'm an interdisciplinary scholar and the, um, the field of American studies is an interdisciplinary field. And actually, I even as an undergraduate, um, I had I, I didn't uh, study it or major in, um, you know, in a discipline. So I'm used to using multiple qualitative methods to do research. And I, and I really enjoy that. Um, but yes, the core of the book is ethnographic. So I do um, try to provide readers with um, a lot of that, uh, that, you know, nitty gritty kind of thick everyday description. And um, so it's, it's interesting to talk about the book because um you know, I have both the big ideas that I'm trying to get across to the book, but then, um, you know, there's lots of little, um, you know, stories and, um, you know, points about particular people that kind of, you know, I hope come out in the work. And um, I, it's it's a challenge, um, speaking of challenges, to kind of um, go from that sort of everyday um, examination to these larger ideas. And that's one of the things I hope people, you know, take away from the book is that kind of method and that analysis or methodology and analysis. So, um, yeah, it's not for you. You know, it's a method in which a researcher derives knowledge, um, you know, through an engagement or de- develops knowledge through an engagement with people and places in real time in the here and now. And um, it's a method that's extremely useful for understanding how people make sense of the social and cultural worlds in which they live and how they create those worlds day in and day out. And so the people that I interviewed um, and observed and, and uh, got to know for this book um, included, for the most part, a lot of call center workers. So people who were taking calls day in and day out, or mostly nightly, uh, to be more accurate. Um, uh, So those are sort of, um, sometimes they're called rank and file workers. Um, So these are call center agents uh, and some of their um, team leaders who were lower level managers. Um, I also interviewed um, and observed uh, upper level managers as well as um, industry leaders. Um, so these are sort of people who work in the industry, but not in a, in a call center. They work to support the industry overall and market the Philippines to corporations around the world. And there were also some activists and government officials that I interviewed. And most of the, the majority of the people that I interviewed were Filipino people, although there was one, um, there were um, Americans, um, white Americans that I uh, also became part of the research um, that we can, you know, obviously talk about a little bit later. And the places that I went um, were, uh, I, I did a lot of observation in call centers um, themselves in Bacolod City, and uh, which is where my family is from, and in Manila. And I also uh, interviewed workers and got to know them outside of work. Um, so, you know, in their homes, uh, hanging out in shopping malls, going to movies, going to cafes, going on vacation with people. And, um, you know, through that method, really got to see multiple aspects of their lives. Um, I would say that, like, one of the most important parts of the of the ethnographic research was a um, was a time that I spent in a call center where I trained for and um, applied for and trained for a job in a call center. And um, I know we'll probably talk a little bit more about this later, but um, I just want to say that that part of the, of the um, research, even though it kind of represents just a small part um, of, you know, it's only, it only took a few weeks to kind of go through that training. It really was a very eye opening experience. And I think got me to see a lot of things that I wouldn't otherwise be able to. Um, some of the challenges uh, or difficulties that I faced, um, I would say, you know, I, I talk a little bit in the beginning of the book about how security concerns changed over the time that I did the research. So when I started in 2008, 
I don't know if it was me or if it was the the people that I um you know the people that I interacted with, but it was actually fairly easy for me to get um to to get into a call center and to do the research I was doing. But when I went back to do follow up observation at the same call center in 2013, um, I ran into some really severe obstacles, and it wasn't anything I had done um, in that time. Uh, you know, in between, but the company for many reasons uh, was being much more um, careful about uh, about who they were letting in. And so, you know, those kinds of security concerns are a real part of the research, meaning they really inform also my understanding of the call center industry as a as you know, an uh, industry that is actually incredibly secretive. Um, you often don't see uh, signs um, announcing the, you know, the, the names of the call center, or um, you certainly don't know um, from at first sight what uh, companies might be using a call center in the Philippines to, um, you know, to service their clients. Um, so the security concerns were really, um, you know, presented certain obstacles, um, but one thing that listeners might be interested to know is that when I had to train for a call center job, um, I had to stay up all night because, um, you know, the jobs themselves take place pretty much overnight. And so to acclimate workers to that schedule, they start um, doing the training on that schedule as well. So my day um, really started at 10 o'clock at night and um, ended around six or seven in the morning. And, um, I really hated it and it really gave me a, a really clear idea of what kinds of, um, uh, you know, the real kind of difficulty of staying up at night and how that really messes up your body. Um, I would get dizzy spells. I would just be completely exhausted. Um, you know, when you're staying up all night and you have to sleep during the day, you never really sleep as well as you would if you did at night. Um, and it kind of affected my research, you know, because, I wasn't that motivated at the end of the night at like six or seven in the morning to kind of stay and hang out with people, um, which would have, you know, I think would be, it was good to do. Um, but I really had to kind of admit to myself that that was a really hard thing for me to do. And I was mostly just wanting to go home at, uh, at the end of every night. And so, um, you know, ethnography is interesting like that because, um, other methods of research certainly have their own physical challenges. It's hard to sit in an archive and look at stuff all day. Um, but ethnography, I think more so than say like textual analysis or ar- archival research really graphs onto your, your own life, you know, and hews very closely to your own life. It is your life that you were living as you were doing the research. So I, I really, you know, found it really difficult to, um, to pull those all nighters while I was, you know, doing research, um, in uh, during the training well since you mentioned your training because i this is such a powerful part of the book and i think this is chapter three right where you really talk more intimately about it um but uh one of the things that struck me was that you was the kind of cultural competency training right the, the things that actually happened in those training groups uh and of course you having this unique perspective um, and being like the American presence, the American like trainee presence in the room was, was quite interesting. Um, and I think this will lead usefully also into some of the ideas, like one of the main ideas in your book, which is the, the uh, Filipino American relatability, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which you call a, a kind of affective, affective capacity for the worker to relate to their American clients. Um, but, and of course this is like, Again, links goes back to other types of like service work, uh, but here is one that's much more explicit, right? In the way that it's like you are being culturally trained to be competent in to talk to Americans, 
in a relatable way, right? And that this becomes a kind of cultural capital or resource. So can you talk maybe a bit about that, um, that training experience and how that, re- that brings us to that, that concept of Filipino-American relatability? So absolutely. Uh, let me start with just talking a little bit about the experience I had uh, applying and training for a job in a call center. So like I said, you know, it was probably one of the most eye-opening aspects of the, um, the research uh, that I did. And I learned a lot just applying for the job itself. Um, there's actually a blood test that I had to take. Um, it, you know, it was a complete surprise that um, this happened in a, in a um, an application process in the Philippines. Um, uh, that's obviously something I'd not experienced in uh, in the United States. But um, but yeah, I mean the the application process kind of mimicked the job itself, and in many ways it was kind of modeling for applicants what the job would be like in and out, at least it's kind of in its affective register. Um, So it was very intense and um, uh, applicants were subjected to a series of aptitude tests, essentially um, that uh, tested things from, you know, their English language capability to sort of technological um, know-how. And those who didn't make the cut were not allowed to move on. And um, by the end of the day, uh, many of the people that I had walked in with were no longer there. And so it gave me a, a, you know, a sense of how kind of competitive the, uh, the, the environment would be and how fast paced. Um, And, and, and then, well, you know, I moved on to, from there, um, after, after getting a job, I moved on to what you were referring to earlier, which is the cultural competency um, uh, training. So, I've, almost every call center worker who's going to work with, um, you know, with American, uh, with Americans at, at all is going to, you know, do a kind of cultural competency um, uh, training. And it can usually, our, my training ran for about one week. And there were, you know, things in, in that training that um, you might, you know, expect. It were sort of um, thinking, you know, having people practice um, neutralizing their accents. So, um, you know, not shortening vowels um, uh, and, you know, and kind of elongating in the way that, um, you know, American English sounds. Um, learning how to speak, how to say an, an unaspirated T. So when you say Manhattan, right, we, we say Manhattan and not Manhattan. Um, so there were things that had to do with uh, with accent uh, and idioms, American idioms as well. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I really learned in that experience was the way that that cultural competency was really very specifically geared toward a customer service, um, you know, relationships. So uh, a lot of that, um, what people learned was how to, you know, how to treat the customer in such a way that the customer would feel, um, you know, good essentially about the interaction and feel that they were getting um, the service that they, you know, that they deserve. So a lot of this was, um, you know, it's a mix of kind of, general cultural um, information, like like information about U.S. holidays and, um, you know, in sports teams, um, mixed with a lot of kind of corporate demand for, um, you know, a certain type of behavior on the part of, uh, on the part of an agent. Um, and then from there, I moved on to doing um, the, the product training. And so the, the company that I worked for, uh, or that I was hired um, you know, to work for, I didn't actually end up taking any calls for them, um, 
that is called Vox Elite, or I call it Vox Elite. And Vox Elite is, you know, a major call center that has, um, you know, offices all over the world. And one of their big clients was a U.S.-based computer company that I call Elfin. And so when I was hired, um, I was hired onto this particular account, and the job was going to be to service um, these particular uh, printers for, um, you know, for the for Elfin, which is the corporate client. And so we had to have trainers from Elfin uh, come to the Philippines uh, and train us on how to um, troubleshoot those particular products. And those trainers were pretty much uh, the exception of one person, young white men. Um, and so there were, you know, interesting moments of uh, Filipino and American relatability uh, or non-relatability as the case may be um, in those situations. I think that leads to one of your book's main arguments. Uh, you know, when you talk about how uh, you, you and others were trained, in a sense, to in this kind of service work, and this is this term that you use also spoke a lot to me um, in the sense that I, I was a service worker for like eight years, working in a movie theater, um, and in like like sales and in big department store, and so it was like. On one hand, I, I, it, it spoke to me in a very interesting way, but it also speaks a lot to American empire, right? This, uh, and you call this term Filipino uh, slash American relatability, right? That this has become seen as a kind of cultural capital, uh, as a national resource, um, but it also rehearses this kind of uh, colonial mentality, right? Because uh, the, the, the worker is always meant to be relatable to the clients. And this is one thing that always bugged me as a service worker, right? That the clients are in no way expected to be relatable to you. Uh, so this relatability is always going one way, one direction, right? Um, which you identify as a kind of labor. Uh, so can you talk a bit more about this term, Filipino-American relatability, uh, and how that that um, how you saw that functioning in the call center? Sure. So uh, Filipino-American relatability is my um, attempt to name something that I had been thinking about for a really long time. And kept showing up in my field work. And it's this idea that Filipinos relate to American to Americans very well and very easily um, as a result of decades of colonization by the U.S., um, you know, a long history of Filipinos migrating, migrating to, the, to the United States and the kind of general presence of American culture um, in the country. And Filipino-American relatability, this concept, is actually a selling point within the industry. So over and over again, I heard that what makes Filipinos um, really ideal for servicing you, you know, clients or customers in the United States is that they have this cultural proximity to Americans, that they can relate to, um, you know, American culture. And, you know, of course, Filipino-American relatability is a cultural and social construct. Um, it essentializes Filipino identity and makes it something, uh, you know, that it's a, a comparative or you know, a comparative advantage in a competitive labor market. It's sort of part of that branding I was talking about earlier. But I didn't really want to just stop there and thinking about it. Um, you know, constructs are created, uh, but they also have meaning and impact. And I wanted to understand the meaning of the of this relatability or and the impact that it was having on people and the way they think about Filipino identity. And, you know, from the start, it was really clear to me that there was a continuity with um, colonialism, that um, 
you know, part of the affective architecture of colonialism or what colonial relationships are built on is this, you know, really essential demand that Filipinos identify with American ways of life, ideologies, um, uh, you know, systems of government, education, and that that relation or that that capacity to relate was about both identifying, you know, with uh, with America, but also being able to communicate, you know, within the empire, communicate within English. And so, I wanted to try to understand um, how that relatability was being, um, you know, resurfaced, reshaped within the present moment in the call center industry. And it started to become clear to me that people were treating that capacity, uh, which has these colonial roots, as a type of cultural capital and as a type of resource, as you said, um, for, uh, you know, for the Philippines as a nation. And I wanted to to think about, you know, what um, what that means and how to, and what that allows us to, to say and understand about the present and its relationship to the colonial past. Yeah. And, and like I said before, a lot of this kind of entails, you know, taking crap from the customers in a way, or, you know, acting subservient to the customers, um, even though, as you describe, you know, and your, your ethnographic research is so vividly detailed, um, you know, you describe the things that are going on on the screen and all the, um, like, you know, the, the, the clocks and the time that, that, all the workers have to constantly pay attention to. Um, and there is a performative aspect that's being ingrained or being trained right into the worker. Uh, and so that the, the customers can almost be abusive in a way, or um, can, you know, often spouts off in, in anger and that the, the workers are kind of there in a sense of to like absorb that. Uh, and so one thing I liked about the ethnographic research is the, the language that's being employed in the, call centers all the time to talk about those kind of things. Um, you even use the word like proximity. They have to have proximity to America or they identify with America. You know, the language that they employed really erases, you know, any kind of inequality or performative aspect or uh, colonial aspect to the work. Right. And so can you talk maybe a bit about that and how the, they, they how the kind of customer service, you know, they're responding to the customer um, plays into that. Absolutely. I think one of the most important um, uh, words in the kind of call center lexicon is the word professionalism. Um, And when uh, when I talk to or try to talk to people about the kind of racism or xenophobia or sexism that they might experience um, from customers when they're doing their jobs, the response was um, one of a kind of uh, detached um, detachment uh, in which workers really understood that when they experienced those things, um, their job was to not respond and to compartmentalize any response that they, any personal, you know, response that they might have because it simply wasn't professional to um, respond. And so um, Kieran Mercandani, who uh, wrote the book Phone Clones, talks about this in her book um, as well. Uh, her book is on call centers in India. And, um, you know, she finds that a lot of the Indian workers just consider this an, just a part of the job. So it, a lot of these um, these moments really be instead of being kind of interpreted or internalized as moments of of um, racism and xenophobia, they get recast as, uh, you know, kind of obstacles that the that the customer will put up that you just have to kind of get over and deal with as part of the job description. And so. 
professionalism becomes one of these terms that, uh, you know, leads to uh, it's helpful in in that, you know, agents do have to get through the call and um, and uh, they they have to, you know, it's, it's good for them too to maintain composure. Um, but it's not helpful in that it really does foreclose a critique of why some Americans are indeed, um, you know, doing uh, speaking in these ways and what that really means or says about the power relations that are playing out even in a, you know, a simple phone call. So um, let's get into the book's overall structure and architecture. So your chapters seem to follow along the, uh, the shifting identities and social conceptions in the Philippines uh, that orbit call center work, uh, moving from how this new form of labor redefines uh, work cultures there to the kind of post-colonial cultural politics of identity and language in the training experiences and the way that the management um, rehearses their own roles. Uh, and then starting to end with the changing character of the middle class uh, and and then finally two shifts in like reproductive rights and sexuality. Uh, so what, how did you come to this overall structure um, of the book? Uh, why trace these kind of dis- these discourses in the order that you do? Great. I, I'd love to talk about that. So let me first say, um, you know, that, that this is, you know, an ethnography, I call this an ethnography of call centers, but from the start, I was not interested in writing a book that was, um, more of a conventional sociology or anthropology of labor where, um, you know, a researcher really focuses and drills down into the labor process and the work culture and doesn't show you workers outside of that setting. I think um, tons of work has been really great and really formative for my research, but I definitely wanted to, you know, deliver a book that that um, gave uh, readers a sense of what of the context in which this work was happening and what it meant for workers outside of the workplace. So that was part of the motivation of having chapters that go from the workplace and the labor process out toward, um, you know, the the kind of consumer culture that workers um, were participating in and, you know, into homes and intimate relationships and and looking at, um, you know, looking at those, uh, looking at those intimate relationships amongst um, amongst workers, which is where the you know, the book ends. Um, one of the one of the ways I thought about you know one of the things that was important to me in organizing the book is that the ideas that I presented were really coming directly from the ethnographic research itself, and um, meaning that. I didn't want to, you know, predetermine the um, the structure by saying, well, you know, by kind of determining it based on like how I did the research, for example. I really wanted the ideas to come out of what I was learning from people by listening to them. And what I learned from people by listening to them is that, um, you know, there's a lot of contradiction and tension and anxiety that people experience um, working in the call center industry. And so I wanted each chapter to explore a different set of those kind of contradictions. And um, from there, you know, uh, I, it, it was, it wasn't easy, but, you know, it more or less kind of presented it, it, itself because the contradictions are pretty stark. So uh, to give a couple of examples, um, you know, one of the, um, you know, one of the, the aspects of the work that's very difficult for people to deal with is that a lot of people think it's a, it's a dead end. Right. Um, so a lot of young people would tell their families, I'm going into call center work and the family, you know, their parents would like, you know, like my, my aunt did um, think that that was a really unwise decision. Um, and 
um, you know, that's that presented an interesting contradiction for people because um, they're being told that the work is a dead end. But when they enter the industry, there's a lot of hope and aspiration. And there's a sense that this is actually the future of the Philippines. Right. Um, so another, you know, another contradiction then would be that, uh, you know, workers kind of understand the, the, the global structure of, um, you know, of uh, labor and global services and understand that they're considered cheaper, a cheaper workforce. But at the same time, because of the, uh, the consumer culture that people are in, engaged in and, and the kind of um, money that people are making, that they don't actually feel like cheap labor. Um, and I know we'll, you know, we'll probably talk about this in a little bit, but this sense that this is um, this tension between the job as, um, you know, potentially a professional avenue of work um, and certainly there were a lot of people that were interested in the, you know, in professionalizing the industry, but also one that was uh, this sense that, the, that, that it's a, it's an industry for young people who aren't really serious, um, you know, about, uh, you know, about a career in the call center industry that they're there just for, for fast money or that the kinds of uh, sexual culture, you know, or um, consumer culture that they're involved in is, is actually destructive. I, I'm, I'm pointing these things out to point out the kind of tensions and anxieties that people experience, you know, in, in the job itself. And so every chapter of the book really looks at that um, going from the, you know, the workplace itself to, um, you know, to the, the training that workers undergo, uh, the kinds of consumer culture and, um, you know, uh, kind of, um, consumer culture and things that, you know, people are able to kind of purchase and their aspirations um, to lead a middle-class life to thinking about um, how sexual politics actually interacts with the industry um, and how uh, people are, you know, finding intimate relationships with one another and, and kind of how that uh, led to a stigmatization of the industry. Yeah, and and I'm speaking of that kind of, I don't know if you'd call it a looping structure, right? But one that starts with the kind of, like you mentioned, the intimacy uh, between the, the, the workers and then also ends kind of with that. But in the end, you're, you talk about it more of, as an excess, right? That's, there's, it's too intimate right? it, um, in the way that like these call centers are framed as queer. So maybe we can just tackle both of those sections together because I think that they work together in a very interesting way, right? And, and in the first one, you talk about how, and I love this definition. So you, you talk about productive intimacy, which you call, uh, I'm just going to quote you, the, the form close relationships between coworkers take when made productive for capital. What I, what I like so much about it is that you um, don't, you resist the idea that like, okay, either these are um, new and resistant types of communities and relationships and solidarities that it's against capital, or they're just being, you know, um, formed for the purposes of like exploitation and capitalism. Um, and I think, like you said, so much of your work comes from the research, but it also comes from really engaging with the people, you know, not choosing either of those immediate, either of those options right away when, when talking to and communicating and instead trying to listen a bit for how those relationships are really meaningful and they can, you know, take many different forms, but they're also made productive for capital. Right. And so it's more of an and than a necessarily than a, but, um, for, that connects those two sections, right? Uh, so maybe we can just talk a bit about productive intimacy, right? What that is, um, and how you saw it take place within the call centers. Sure. Yeah. 
I'm really glad that you uh, mentioned listening because um, the, when this book was my dissertation, um, the title was Listening Between the Lines. And you're right. When you when you listen to what people say about their experiences and you talk and, you know, they talk to you about, um, you know, the things that uh, they go through day in and day out. It's, you know, it's really obvious that um, those kind of dichotomies between um, being completely, um, you know, the work being complete drudgery, you know, or completely freeing and new that those dichotomies just don't work. Um, and uh, they're not very productive. So um, this concept of productive intimacy was my way of naming um, some of these kind of uh, complex dynamics, um, you know, in which a workplace can really cult a workplace can culture can foster closeness among coworkers and um, how that closeness actually can help a company get more out of workers, right? More productivity, more regulation and control, more positive identification with the corporate culture, more motivation, you know, and of course more value in the form of profit. Um, but at the same time, those, um, you know, those productively intimate relationships are experienced in many ways as real by, um, by workers and they're finding, um, you know, uh, a kind of intimacy and a kind of support amongst one another, which they need because the work is incredibly grueling. It's incredibly demanding. It's incredibly demotivating. And, um, and so I wanted to, you know, be able to, to think about um, and have other people think about what, um, how that, that kind of intimacy um, might work without collapsing it into either, you know, a completely um, bad thing or, you know, a completely good thing. Um you know, teammates who needed and wanted support from one another, you know, they have, um, they, they developed that intimacy. And I also saw it with uh, managers who wanted um, to manage their teams um, and really motivated their teams by kind of getting to know people. And, uh, you know, you're right. It productive, the concept of, uh, of intimacy returns um, at the end of the book when I talk about the, the intimacies that develop between workers um, in call centers and is part of the reason that the call centers had this uh, stigmatization uh, of being in a kind of a, a sexualized, overly sexualized environment. Um, and I refer to that, you know, as the, the queering of the call center industry. So it's not just about sex, but it's also about, um, you know, the presence of a, a, a large population of, of um, gender non-normative um, individuals who are kind of in the call center expressing, um, you know, new kind of uh, gender identities and sexual identities. And uh, the way that those intimacies um, are not considered productive um, by many people, um, many uh, observers, um, in part because they are um, non-reproductive in that real, you know, in that sense of social reproduction, right? That they're not heteronormative and they're not uh, supported within the marriage of uh, the institution of marriage. And so there's a way in which kind of productivity and intimacy are words that definitely um, circulate throughout, um, throughout the book. And it's really, um, I'm glad that that came through. Uh you kind of just answered the last question that I had for you about, about those last chapters. So I'm glad we were able to, to kind of conceptualize all that together, but you're, we did skip a bit of the middle part, which is where you talk more about the kind of structure of the call center um, and, uh, and the management that you kind of, that you, and your experiences with the management uh, and how they kind of rationalize their positions within a kind of racialized and gendered logic. That's also very market driven, of course, or as always kind of at bottom, very market driven. Um, and so can you focus a bit on these like larger authoritative mechanisms uh, that you talk about in, in the middle part of your book uh, and the role of, of management and middle management? 
Sure. I, uh, yeah, there is, there is a decent amount about management um, and managers in, uh, in those middle chapters. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the ways that the managers kind of market driven logic, one of the things that it really shows is, is the extent to which people, um, you know, the participants in my research were really internalizing this, the, the logic and really coming to identify with the firms. And this was actually something that they understood was happening as well. Um, I, I talk about an interview that I had with one person who he was, um, he was in HR uh, or human resources, so he was in charge of, of, you know, doing the hiring. And he came to this point where he realized that he really liked working in the call center because, um, you know, because people, he, he and his coworkers were so invested in the work and that they could, um, you know, that they could kind of put all of themselves in it and that it was an environment that um, that supported that. And so I think what, you know, you see a lot of the managers, um, uh in positions that, you know, kind of push them to internalize things. And, and in some ways they struggle with that as well. There's one um, person that I interviewed who um, was kind of trying to move up to another um, position in management and he was having a hard time because he couldn't, um, although he was very good at uh, motivating the people on his team and his team did really well, uh, his supervisors, um, you know, wanted him to be able to quantify that and to be able to say, you know, exactly how um, in, you know, how he, how he did that, um, how he was able to motivate people, like, and actually be able to measure that. And it was a moment where he realized, you know, that that's sort of what, um, you know, that's what it meant to be a manager was that you had to kind of have metrics for how you were doing things. Um, you know, and I think where it comes to, uh not necessarily managers, but in interacting with the the white middle class male trainers, um, you know that I that I did uh, interact with during the training. Um, I, I think there, that sort of revealed really post industrialism and capitalism, you know, at work um, as everything I think in in the book does, um, you know, and as as these industries, um, you know, or as these jobs move from one population to another, and how kind of incomplete and problematic. Um, they, those, those guys had their, their frames of reference were for understanding some of the global dynamics. So, um, you could kind of see that they were on the ground figuring out and, and coming, realizing that, oh, wow, like I'm training, um, somebody that's going to replace me and, you know, uh, globalization is something that's hurting me too. Um, and they were really rethinking, you know, what, like, their levels of education, for example, many of uh, those uh, white trainers were not um, college educated and they were clearly concerned about what was going to happen to them when, you know, their, uh, their time at Elfin was, was over and they had to, you know, return to the United States and, and potentially look for another job. So I think, you know, looking at managers and looking at, at folks in these, um, in these sort of slightly higher level positions in the firm just gave me a different, um, way of, you know, seeing how these larger processes, uh, you know, of post-industrialism or late capitalism really were working and reshaping um, people's lives and the way that they understood themselves and their futures and, um, and, you know, who they, uh, you know, who they were. Um, So your, your last chapter examines how call center work has become associated with gender and sexual deviance, as well as with sexually transmitted disease. Uh, Here you describe how call centers have been constructed as queer sites through liberal hiring and promotion policies, uh, the sexualization of global media, the sexualization, sexual practices of youth, and as well as the industry's uh, valorization of relational labor. 
which creates opportunities for bakla, trans women, and other queer peoples as performative individuals. Can you talk about this discourse around queerness um, and sexual practices that becomes attached to call center work? Definitely. Uh, so the chapter you're referring to is um, chapter five, and it, uh, it's called uh, Queering the Call Center, Sexual Politics, HIV AIDS, and the Crisis of Reproduction. And um, I'll start by maybe just talking about the, the idea for this chapter and where, where it came from. So it, the idea for it came a little bit later in my in my in my research in my fieldwork. So it wasn't sort of like, an, you know, originally part of the dissertation proposal. Um, but you know, it came, these issues came to my attention because there were reports of rising HIV levels um, in the country around 2010. And other researchers who were looking into this traced a number of those new cases of HIV to call center workers. So in the sort of style of, um, you know, uh, Stuart Hall and the British, you know, uh, uh, British Cultural Studies, I, I saw a moral panic really ensue um, in the wake of those reports. And what I argue is in the chapters that the public was sort of primed for this moral panic because of the ways that the industry and workers and the whole um, sort of media assemblage, as you alluded to, were already marked as uh, or framed as sexual and queer sites. So the chapter looks at a number of ways that this framework of the call center as a queer site or in a sexualized site was constructed. And I go, I, I run through a number of different ways that, you know, this, this has happened um, prior to the, to the reports of HIV um, cases, right? So, you know, an example of that would be that a lot of people are, are uh, you know, are they're obviously working at night. They're working overnight in order to, um, you know, meet the kind of demands of, of Western time zones. And so what this involves is, you know, a lot of young people circulating on the streets at night, working behind, um, you know, highly securitized spaces where it's not entirely clear, like what, you know, what they're doing. Um, and there's a sense that, you know, the kind of media, uh, you know, kind of global media uh, chains or connections that they're making open them up to or or are making them part of sex work, uh, you know, or, or, or internet pornography um, and things like that. And so, and the, and the kind of circulating at night opened up um, call centers to this, uh, this impression that they were doing night work, which of course is, you know, has uh, a connotation of being, you know, associated with sex commerce. So um, there were even kind of jokes about this early on in the call center, that if you were a call center worker, you were a call boy or a call girl, which, um, you know, is another way of saying that you're a sex worker. So there's already that kind of in place. Um, and then at the same time, the industry um, became um, became kind of known for being a place where, you know, people are young people are forming intimate relationships with one another. And some a lot of those intimate relationships are really they really emerge because of the incredible amount of stress that workers are, you know, undergoing and also the kind of just camaraderie and, and general intimacy that they achieve as, as coworkers in this really unique environment. And um, I've talked to a number of workers who, you know, who are under this impression about themselves as well, that, you know, the call center is a place where you can find kind of um, casual sexual relationships where also your own previous relationships, um, committed relationships might be challenged because, you know, you don't see your partner at night. If the partner doesn't work in a call center um, and you're making all, all these new friends, you know, in the, in the industry, um, you know, at work at the same time uh, there's, um, you know, these, 
environments follow the um, non-discrimination policies of, um, you know, that because these are usually American or European countries and they have non-discrimination policies. So they in in hiring and um, promotion. So they are places where um, LGBTQ um, individuals can, um, you know, find employment and, um, you know, and kind of in some ways find a supportive environment amongst their peers in the the workplace. So all of these factors together um, help to shape this discourse of the the call center industry in the Philippines as a site where um, young people can um, identify as and express non-normative gender identities, um, non-normative sexual identities, and where they are forming these um, intimate relationships with one another that are Un, that are read as um, deviant because they're not non-monogamous or they're casual um, or they're, uh, you know, same-sex relationships, et cetera. And, you know, all of this, it, as I described in the chapter, is happening against the backdrop of changing sexual politics in the country and, you know, the passage of a, of a, of a historic reproductive rights bill in the country. So one of the things that I, I really, the thing that I ultimately argue in the chapter is that the panic is not really about epidemiology or or health um, per se, but it's a social and cultural panic about how these larger dynamics are playing out in the in the country, and it's you know a fear about um, social reproduction, uh, the, a fear that the industry itself, you know, because of the kind of um, activities that people are you know perceived to be going on in the industry, will will essentially be its own dead end, right? That that the industry itself won't be able to reproduce the Philippines oil workers because, um, you know, because it is what one person described to me as like a sexual ticking time bomb. So I talk about how this kind of gets this, these ideas get wrapped up in, in the fear that of the larger, you know, reproduction of the industry um, that, you know, it itself is a, is a dead end um, because, you know, workers can't advance within it, um, because it's contingent on corporate, um, you know, U.S. corporate capital. And I look at it the way that young people working within the industry ultimately kind of come to stand in for these larger cultural crises, crises. And really, as a result, their stigma, their stigmatization is really, um, amplified. So, you know, we've talked about a lot of your ideas in the book, um, and I'm curious what large impacts, you know, you're hoping for the book to make uh, on the, the different fields that you're, you know, as, in, as an interdisciplinary scholar that you're kind of caught between, right? Labor studies, transnational Asian American studies is another field you mentioned. Uh, how, what are you seeing for the kind of future of this book? I really hope that students and other scholars in, um, you know, in those fields that you mentioned can uh, take something away from the methodology and the analysis um, that the book uh, engages in, uh, you know, how to look at something in an everyday life that may seem not, you know, may not seem super interesting or, or, um, or just has that kind of everyday quality and draw insights into larger processes. Uh, that's something that, as I was saying, you know, at the beginning of our discussion, that it was really important to me um, to do. And it's probably, probably the reason I became an academic was that you know, there are things in everyday life that we experience um, that are not spectacular things, right? Going to work often doesn't feel like a spectacular thing, but that, uh, you know, are, are um, you know, sources of knowledge and that, and that uh, critical thinking about those, um, about those everyday things can really lead to kind of larger insights and understandings. Um, of course, I want 
uh, folks in uh, American studies and Asian American studies to think of this book as one that will help them think about the after effects of colonialism and how, um, you know, and how colonialism and colonial dynamics get recast in, uh, in a marketplace and how, uh, and how marketplace rhetoric, while seemingly neutral um, and you know seemingly ha- you know has nothing to do with um, with uh, identities or gender and you know race, ability, etc., um, that in fact are um, those are constitutive features of uh, the way that markets are organized and economies are built and capitalism operates. Um, for you know theories of labor, this is this is a really big one for me. I really I really hope that um, folks read the book and are motivated to think about the affective and emotional dimensions of the labor that people do. I think we're in this interesting moment where a lot of people are thinking about that, and you know we could be you know on the verge of a, a great retheorizing of um, what effort you know it takes for human beings to um, you know really. Uh, support one another and, and um, also, you know, deal with uh, difficult conditions, um, both just, you know, working conditions, but also living conditions um, and the kinds of effort it now takes to just, you know, reproduce ourselves day in and day out. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for that, that the book doesn't do. And I hope that, you know, people are inspired to, to look at those dynamics. Thank you so much for um, joining us to talk about your book. Uh, do you mind uh, ending by sharing any new research that you've been working on? What comes next after after this book? Oh, sure. I'd love to. So um, I have a couple of different things, of course. And um, one of them is really one research uh, avenue is picking up on ideas of media, technology, and emotions that come out of this book. Um, it's not focused on the Philippines, but um, it is uh, – it is, focusing on those ideas that don't really get super developed in the book. And um, so I'm looking at the way that media technology and emotions are intersecting um, through things like emotionally artificial intelligent machines or, or um, apps that help measure and regulate people's emotions. Um, I wrote something recently that got published in cultural studies, uh, an article called mining the mind, um, which is about how we, we live in an age in which um, how we feel, what we feel um and how our, you know, how our brains process emotions are increasingly important data for capital. Um, I'm also returning to earlier work on the Philippine Carnival, um, which is a commercial industrial affair that took place uh, during the American colonial era. Uh, that's actually, you know, based on the archival research I was doing in 2006, uh, so a while ago. And that deals with the production of a Philippine colonial economy during the American colonial era and the forms of racial management that were um, inherent to that process. And then finally, I'm doing some personal writing, um, partly about growing up as a Filipino-American girl in suburban Florida and partly about traveling to the Philippines in the 20s and sort of what that meant for me and uh, in my immediate family. Well, I want to read all that. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Thanks, Chris. Uh, okay, great. Well, um, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, it's it was it's my pleasure really to to interview you for this book, and I really recommend the book to anyone to the listeners out there who might be interested in any of the concepts about labor, uh, about colonialism, and about the Philippines. Great, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this interview with Jen Pedios on her new book, A Nation on the Line, Call Centers as Post-Colonial Predicaments in the Philippines. If you have any questions, grievances, or suggestions for books for this podcast, you can contact us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks for listening.